Welcome to Lives, a show exploring our experiences in the world and how we might live well. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden, and my guest today is playwright, producer, director, and performer, Lauren Hans. We'll talk about The Holy O, Hans's interactive one-woman show coming to the Omaha Fringe Festival in August, as Hans's character Vera considers becoming a Catholic nun through the funny, troubled, and moving stories of the women in her life. Hans also talks about being raised in the Christian purity culture of 90s America, her evolving faith, and balancing the creative arts and spiritual beliefs. That is part of what we do as artists. We reflect the world around us, and then we reflect also back to the world of things that we would like to see maybe better or see different or just like to see discussed. You know, I believe art should ask really good questions. I don't know if it should always answer questions. Lauren Hance's plays have been produced from coast to coast, and her career encompasses most areas of theatre. She regularly works as an actress, improviser, director, producer, and playwright. Hance earned her degree in theatre from Abilene Christian University and a Master of Arts in Theology, with an emphasis in theology, arts, and culture from Fuller Theological Seminary. In August, her interactive one-woman show, The Holy O, will be performed at the Omaha Fringe Festival, sharing the story of Vera, a vivacious and possibly lost woman who is contemplating becoming a Catholic nun, but has never considered celibacy one of her virtues. Vera's situation is complicated by the onset of visions and rapturous prayers, leading to the audience becoming characters from her past and saints in her present. Lauren Hans, welcome to Lives. Thank you so much for having me, Stuart. Let's start with, if I could, asking you to just give some sense of the story. What's the general narrative arc of the Holy O? So the story follows this woman, Vera. It's a one-woman show, so I, I play her. It is, it is not autobiographical. And she uh, has moved to Boston. She's been there about six years. And she finds herself in this kind of religious situation. She's befriended some nuns that live next door to her. And... She's starting to have these rapturous-like prayers where her body responds physically while she's deep in prayer. And so the opening scene is me having an experience like that. It's very personal, if you will, (laughs) um, as far as how that experience goes. And as soon as she finishes having her experience. It has climaxed, if you will. (laughs) We'll use puns here. (laughs) She opens her eyes and then the audience, she can now see them. Like, why are they there? What is going on? She's also has a task ahead of her. She is sorting all of her clothing. That's the last thing she has to do because that night after work, she's going to move in with the nuns to figure out if she wants to go full-blown nun. They have the task of helping her sort the clothes, but her dilemma is that the clothes remind her of people that she loves and reminds her of things that are going on in her life. And so that's where uh, the audience 
gets to participate. So they get to talk with Vera and they get to choose the clothes that she gets to keep. And as she chooses the clothes that she keeps, there's a story that is told behind each one of those. And so as she's sorting through that, her life starts to unfold and the audience gets to see the journey that she has been on and the quandary that she's in and the dilemma that she has and intermixed with these other other stories. And, and it ends with lots of questions, I like to think, more than lots of answers. So it is a story about a character, Vera, but in some ways, Vera is a representative of perhaps a persona of many women who have similar experiences or can relate to her experiences. And moreover, the encounters she shares with so many other people that you've already alluded to that are represented by these artifacts that she has around her, the clothes and and this sort of thing. Yeah. When I was writing the show, I really wanted to explore the connection between our bodies and our spirits and our sexuality. So a lot of the stories center around that. A lot of Vera's experiences center around that and also around spirituality. And so I think that's where a lot of the audience finds connection and that they find themselves in that piece because I like to broach topics that I feel like sometimes are a little bit taboo. We may be comfortable talking about them on social media sometimes as 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 conversations have grown, but I think when it comes to day-to-day conversations and interactions, that's something that we still keep very private. And so I want to dive into those topic areas so that people can feel like they have connection and they're not alone. So so it, it definitely explores lots of those themes as well. This probably is a, an appropriate time to share with people that some of those stories are hard. I mean, they're often engaging, sometimes funny and quite wry. Some of them really are disturbing. So fair warning to audience members that some of them touch on issues like sexual violence and domestic violence and issues like that. That being said, all of the stories, these side paths that Vera explores through the play, all of those stories that she tells are important, but are there any that for you perhaps particularly stand out? That's a great question. So in the creation of this show, I interviewed dozens of people. So I'm going to be that terrible artist that says all of them are important to me because like Vera is connected to her clothes, they do remind me of people of where I got that story, who I spoke with. And some of them are mishmashes of stories and they always pull at at my heartstrings because these were real life people that I talked to that were willing to share their experiences with me and be vulnerable with me. And I I love all of them. There's a set at the end, closer to the end of the show that are always just hard, like you said, that are, are some of the hardest ones that deal with violence against the body when, when people, um, attack the body when it's not welcome. And those those stories are really, really difficult. There's also ones that explore eating disorders and there's ones that explore body dysmorphia and a lot of like where we have presuppositions about people and their bodies and their body sizes. And especially being a performer, that's always been a thing for me of, well, you've got to be skinny and you've got to 
look a certain way. And that can be really triggering for people in some of those earlier stories as well. So I know that does not answer the question because they're all precious and wonderful to me. I get so excited every night. I choose the ones that I'm going to offer to the audience and I go, I hope I get to tell this one. And I just like every time they choose a piece of clothing, I say, oh, I get to tell this story. I'm so excited. (laughs) So it's fun. I love all of them. Well, I very much want to talk about some of those issues that surfaced as you explained them just then, and also how and why you structured the play as you have. Before I get to that, though, I, I do want to ask you about the many women that you did speak to in person to gather their stories and, and then be able to craft them in a creative way through the play. How did you go about that process of inviting people to intimately and vulnerably share some of those stories and their experiences? Yeah, I um, first it's, you know, it starts when you're asking somebody to be vulnerable with you, especially if they know you, you have to start with vulnerability yourself. And so when I, I started creating the play, I started talking to a few friends of mine about the, the concept and my own experiences that I was going through of understanding my sexuality and, and how I grew up. I grew up in purity culture and the difficulties that, that, that presented for me throughout my entire life. And, and I found women on the, on the edge of their seats, you know, wanting to hear more. It was like little panting dogs. I, I you know, like <laughs> they were just so, so curious and so wanted to talk about these things. And they just wanted someone to listen. They wanted to know that they weren't alone. And I, as I started sharing that, I thought, I've got to get people to share their stories. And it has to be a part of this creation of this piece because it's so much bigger than than me and my experiences. And I just re- started reaching out to people that I knew. There were even a few groups that I, I posted on and there were people that that didn't know me that said they would be willing to talk to me. I had a little web page that was password protected that they could go view. And it had my story, video story, so they could watch that. I also had it written out. So they knew what they were getting into before they would share. And the people that were willing to share with me, to be quite frank, were people that had processed a lot of the things that had happened to them. Folks that that didn't want to share with me, I never really heard from them, but I did realize by those that did share that they had done a good bit of processing of what had happened to them. And so they were ready to share that story with with the world, if you will, anonymously. Is there any worry that having heard those stories from people that were in a position to share them with you uh, because you create that space in a way that was making that possible? Any fear that as audience members engage with, interact with the performances, that in some ways this could be daunting for some of them, not least if they've encountered some of the experiences that you are sharing. Uh, yeah. So so some of the people that I did interview were, I had a handful of people go, now you're not going to say specifically, or if this ever got out, you know, and I said, no, 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 no. Your, your privacy is the utmost importance to me. And I change 
a lot of things about the story. So they, no one would be able to I, identify them. And then I, I did my first staged reading and I had a few of the people there that had contributed. And I had somebody come up to me afterwards and say, I kept hearing the stories and I thought, oh, that's my story. Oh, that's my, no, 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 that one's my story. And it was so neat to hear how they connected with each one of them. And it, it is interesting because it is an interactive show. I look at the audience. I see the audience. I'm reading them constantly, trying to figure out what's going on with them and for them. I just had a performance here in Houston and I can see when something hits funny Sometimes it flashes through my mind like, oh, are they bored? You know, like, are they bored of listening to me, you know? But I don't think that's the case. I think that something has been shared, something has been said that hits a chord with them. And people either become more engaged or they retreat, depending on where they are in their journey of life. But I do hope when they leave, they feel less alone, whether they were able to address what came up for them or not. You were generous enough to share with me the script for the play. And I don't know if this is actually in the performance or not, but the script contains biblical references to scripture. And on the front page of the script, is this excerpt from Hosea 2.14. And that excerpt is, I am now going to allure her. I will lead her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. Now, I'm not a biblical scholar, but that starts the play as it were, the script as a prologue or perhaps as an encapsulation. And I wonder if you wouldn't mind just expanding on that particular reference and, and perhaps what it says to the reader about how they should interpret and read the, the play that you've written. Thanks for asking that. Yeah, a lot of people don't get to see that. That a lot is a part of my creative process. And if I do share the script, then those who see that can look deeper into it. As you mentioned, I went to Fuller Theological Seminary. So I, I, I consider myself a theologian. And that comes from the book of Hosea, which is a precarious book of the Bible. There's a lot, they use the word whoredom and like lots of bad words that you would never think are in the Bible. It's a great little book, but the concept was there was this dude named Hosea that God said, hey, I want you to marry this lady, but she has a bad reputation. She was a prostitute or a whore, if you will. And so she has a bad reputation and then they have a family and then God's like, oh yeah, by the way, she's going to cheat on you. It's going to be like a real bad relationship. And But I still want you to marry this woman. And so Hosea acquiesces and he does what, what God tells him. And then that, that kind of happens in the first few chapters of the book. And then the book goes on to parallel Hosea's relationship to his wife to the relationship between God and his people, Israel. So this is, this is before Jesus. So this is the, the, the Jewish people and Israel has strayed far from God and they are just, they are just acting a fool. Like <laughs> they're into lots of sin, if you will. 
<laughs> like that the Lord is like not keen on. So he says, hey, I want to be your God. They're like, yeah, that's cool. But I'm also going to follow all these other gods. And God's like, nah, man, that's not cool. And he says, hey, I'd like for you to live in this way. And they're like, mm, I don't think so. And they just kind of do what they want to do. And it and it causes a lot of problems. There's also these folks called the Assyrians. They're coming in and taking over. The cultures are meshing, which sounds weird in our American way. Like, what's bad about cultures meshing? <laughs> um, but you have to understand it within its context. But the people are just adapting to things that, that God doesn't want them to do. And, and so they're, they're far from him and they, they kind of really don't want to follow him. And so that scripture is talking about God speaking to his people that he's going to bring them into a desert, a place where they have some suffering and some loss. And he is going to speak with love to them in hopes that they will return to him. And I love that idea because as a human and as Vera's journey, she has, she has had a relationship with God and then she has rejected him and some things have gone terribly wrong for her in her life. Even when she was had a relationship with God, just a lot of, of traumatic things have, have happened to her. And um, she's angry. She's angry with God. And God is, is coming to her and, and, and bringing her to a place of brokenness, if you will, of just complete, like, I don't know what to do with my life. I don't know who I am. Everything is falling apart around me. And that is where God comes in to, to love her. And that's what's happening in that scripture. I do feel like Vera's been brought into a desert for God to speak kindly and tenderly to her. And we don't need to go into the details of the other scriptural references that, again, don't necessarily make it into the performance itself, but in the script that you've written, you do open each act with a scriptural reference that in some way gives some grounding to what the potential stories are in that particular act's performance. Yes, that's correct. Because as a theologian and as a as an artist, I I tie that that deeply to my to my faith and and my belief in in the scriptures. And so I love having that that tied to there. And and I will I do this one. There's a there's this one where this or the husband has a wife and he gets mad at her. I think it's a domestic abuse situation in the Bible, and he cuts her up into pieces and then like sends her to 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 other people. This is what happens in the Bible. And so that is the scriptural reference in there when we're talking about a lot of those abuse cases. So it's definitely deeply in, ingrained. But it doesn't come out in the performance. It's not a super like Bible-y, Jesus-y <laughs> type of show. If you're expecting to see that, you better turn and walk the other way. <laughs> so. <laughs> so you mentioned a little while ago that you want to address issues around spirituality, faith, the fact that we have these spiritual inclinations, and if if this is something you believe in, then souls, but they're all wrapped up in in this body, this physical sort of corporeal structure that we walk around in every day. And in some ways, you refuse to accept that these aren't intrinsically connected elements or factors of how we encounter life and existence. And I'm curious about that refusal to 
distinguish or to separate those two things, the soul and the body. And, and there's one character in the play that says, when someone does something to your body, they do it to your soul. It's not like the two are disconnected. Every touch, every smell, every taste, it's all part of who we are. And I wonder if you wouldn't mind talking a little bit more about how you see that body-soul connection and perhaps how you're trying to express some of the questions there through Vera. Like I said, I grew up in, in purity culture, kind of at its height in the 90s. And there was within the Christian subculture, the idea that our bodies are bad, our sexuality is bad. Um, what's good is the spirit, the heart within us. And I don't know if I really necessarily believe that because our bodies in the Christian worldview were given to us by God. We're embodied spirits and our bodies are are massively important in how we experience the world. And our sexuality is not all of who we are, but it is a component. And when you try to sever that from the person and from the soul, I think it does a lot of damage. It did to me. That was my experience. And I think that it hurts people. And, and there's people that have way worse horror stories than I do of purity culture and, and what that did to them. I also think on the flip side, I was also growing up, you know, women's liberation was a big thing. Sexuality was a lot. I remember watching a Friends episode where Monica was talking about her erogenous zones and like what pleased her. And she had these numbers. I don't know if you remember this episode. And she was like, zone one, two, three. And, and then she gets into this rhythm like a poetry. She's like, one, two, three, four, 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 four. Like it's like, and I'm sure I'm getting the numbers wrong. And she just has like a whole like orgasm on you know, on camera talking about her erogenous zones. And so, you know, sexuality became a thing that that we talk about and even even in our culture. And I think that our culture, we see a lot of separation of the body and the personhood as well in culture of do whatever you want with your body, do all the things. And it's fun for a while, but it can really wear on you as a as a person. And I think every person that I spoke to when I was interviewing them and that that had processed that and had had maybe a season where they did whatever the heck they wanted to were like, I had multiple people say, that was really dangerous what, what I did. And it was really hard and how it impacted their relationships that they have or relationships that they really want to be in. And there was just a lot of, of baggage with that. So I, I'm not pointing a finger specifically at the Christian subculture either or at culture. I'm just saying that that our bodies are part of who we are. They're part of how we experience the world. They're a part of of our person and we can't start to separate our souls and our personhood from our, from our bodies. They're just so important. They're, you know, bodies, 
we hug each other and we feel and and that's some some ways how we experience love when we're stressed we cry or we scream their bodily reactions our body helps us process those those things that that we're feeling and that make up who we are and what we experience in the world and I am still on a path of exploring that and understanding that, but I really wanted to dig into that, into this show. And that also, you know, from a theological standpoint, you know, God gave us our bodies and our sexuality and it's good and it's beautiful and it helps us experience the world in it. And for those of us that are spiritual, it helps us experience God, even sex and orgasms and (laughs) all of those things help us know more about ourselves and about the the spiritual realm and about each other. You could have creatively, I'm sure, manifested these themes and these characters in, in different ways, but you chose to create a one-person performing play, which is also very interactive and invites the audience to choose their own adventure with you. What was it that made you make those creative choices? I don't like auditioning and I don't like submitting my plays and wanting somebody else to produce it. It's a real pain in the butt, if you will. I am also an improviser. And so as I started putting it together, I don't know. It just, I thought I was going to do one person show and I'm going to talk to the audience and I'm going to have multiple stories and I'm going to interact. It's just all kind of who I am. And that was how it all came together. I've had so many people think I'm crazy for doing it this way. I've heard a lot of people tell me a one person show is about the hardest thing that you can do as a performer because it is just you. And that is it. And I, I do have the audience. I've had a lot of audience members tell me like, I'm so nervous to talk to you because what if I say the wrong thing? And what they don't understand is that I'm an improviser. You cannot say the wrong thing. There's not a thing in the world you can say that's wrong and would mess this up. I have your back. I have it. I'm in control. I've got it. And then the stories, I love those. And I've had theater people go, if you ever publish this and I'm like I'm not publishing this play man this is this is mine they're like that's just a lot to memorize and I'm like that's fine I like it <laughs> so it's just just all part of who I am it sounds incredibly demanding on you as a performer as you just suggested so it sounds like a very courageous step also a practical one so that you can maintain some control uh, from a you know a business perspective in in many ways what does this do to the audience, it's actually a heavier lift in some ways for the audience, and and I would expect also a more enriching one. But I don't want to make in, uh, assumptions here. But you are asking a lot more of the audience than would be typical. How how do you feel about that? And and so far, how has that gone over? I think I'm pretty straightforward in my marketing that this is an interactive show and that people get to choose what happens so they know what they're getting into. And we, my director and I, she helped me develop the show, the very first portion of it. This is the technical aspect is I teach you how to watch the show and how to interact with me. And there's things that are very intentional in that of 
this is what I'm going to expect of you. And here's what I'm going to do. And here's what you're going to do. Uh, it's very, you know, covert. I don't come out and say that. But but that's what we do. And we do that in improv when I'm doing games. I play short form improv with a group called Comedy Sports. And we teach the audience how to watch the show. We teach the audience how to give suggestions. We teach them how to respond. And for the most part, everybody does a really, really good job. And so once I've set the stage for exactly what they're getting into, then people have an opportunity for those that do want to volunteer, volunteer. And I make sure that people learn up front, I'm not going to pick on you. I'm not going to, if if you don't say anything, I'm not going to come and go, what do you think what should I do here? It's always those who will raise their hand or, or say something. And so I don't ever want anybody to feel like they can't. And we do say um, there's a little curtain speech that happens that says, if you don't want to do it, you can say pass and that's fine. And I'll I'll fix it on the fly and get somebody else to 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 step in. But I think most people know what they're getting into, that it is interactive and and they have fun. So, and I read the audience again, if there's those people that have shut down, that's fine. I'm, I'm not going to them. I'm not, I'm not making eye contact with them as much, that kind of thing so that they feel comfortable in the show. It's pretty clear given that you've sourced some of the inspiration for the content from groups of women that you've spoken to this interaction with the audience too, that collaboration is clearly an important part of how you approach a, your creative spirit and creative techniques and process. And you've written that the creative process is not a solitary act. It is working together to create something beautiful. Could you talk a little bit more about that collaborative element that you bring to your creativity? I love collaboration. I'm a funny little person. I, I When I'm doing serious work, I like to do it by myself. And then I love the collaborative process, which is probably why I love theater so much. The very first time that I had a script that I wasn't kind of working on myself. It was in New Orleans. I was I was working with a, a playwriting group and I handed the script over and that was it. And they got to put it together. And I got to peek in on a rehearsal and it was the most exhilarating thing because they saw stuff in the script that I did not even know was there. Like, it was just so beautiful. It was the coolest thing to go, did I write that? Is that what I, did I do that? I didn't even know I did that. That was so cool. That was so cool that you found that. And it takes you to see that because I can't see all the things. And it takes all of the different people in the process to make the thing come alive. And, you know, art, I, I heard somebody say recently, you know, like art isn't finished until somebody sees it, you know, and I would say that's true for the most part, there's a handful of things that we create that are for ourselves. But the last step in the process for most of the arts, whether it's visual art, performing art, is involving the audience and how they respond. How do they view that painting? How do they feel when they hear that music? What's going on for them when they see those dancers go across the stage? What are they thinking about when they hear this story from a play? What emotions does it bring up for them? And that is part of what we do as artists. We reflect the world around us, and then we reflect also back to the world of things that 
we would like to see maybe better or see different or just like to see discussed. You know, I believe art should ask really good questions. I don't know if it should always answer questions. I think those are some other realms of of the world, but I think art should should ask questions. I feel like it's time perhaps to think about where does all this come from? You've been doing a lot of theatre work for a long time. And we've been talking about this one particular creative expression, the Holy O. And so let's start at the beginning. What what was your childhood like? What stands out to you from, from your childhood? Well, I'm an only child, an extrovert, out of the womb, raised by two introverts. <laughs> so, and I never had any brothers and sisters. It was fun growing up. My parents, my dad has a PhD in mathematics and my my mother got her um, master's degree in home economics in the 70s. She used to go around teaching people how to use microwaves. I loved that, that that was one of the things that that she did in her life. And so um, I grew up a very expressive child. My parents didn't always quite know <laughs> what to do with me. Friends would come over and play. And as they were, parents were pulling out of the driveway, I'd look at my parents and go, who can I play with now? And they would just go, oh, you've been playing for five hours. Can't, don't you want to take a nap? You know, no, I don't want to take a nap. On the whole, my parents were great. I did really have a good childhood. Like I said, I grew up in purity culture, and I don't have as much of the horror stories as some people had. And I, I do count myself lucky that I had parents that loved me, that that loved each other. I had a, a, a nice, you know, wonderful family. My mom, you know, probably didn't know what to do with me, so she stuck me in a drama class. And that was it. That was it. I was hooked. I was like, this is the thing that I want to do, you know, and it was kind of like I... I never looked looked back after that. So I want to explore that a little bit then, this twinning, this synthesis between the theater, creative arts and expression, and then a, a deep faith and theology and seminary school and, and these kind of two tracks working together. So at the beginning, what was the faith context in which you were raised? I grew up. Church of Christ, which is a denomination, it's a Protestant denomination that relies very heavily on the New Testament. M most notably, we're the denomination that doesn't believe in musical instruments or didn't for a very long time because they didn't see them in the New Testament. Most of us now go, oh, that's so ridiculous. But that was what it was, but very much grounded in, in the scriptures. So um, unlike a lot of some other Protestant denominations that have like memorized prayers and lots of liturgy or the Catholic Church that has prayer beads and saints and things like that. The Church of Christ doesn't have anything like that. And there's actually no big governing body, which is actually very different from most Protestant denominations. Most Protestant denominations have a governing body. 
And the Church of Christ is not. Each church stands alone. So that's been an interesting thing as I've grown in my faith and went to different churches. Like, I'm like, I don't understand. Like, why is there so much hierarchy? I don't get it. You know, because I just like didn't grow up with that. And I still scratch my head about it. And so, yeah, so I grew up, I grew up Church of Christ. <laughs> so you mentioned that your mother took you to drama school to, um, I guess, get all that energy out of you, but you fell in love with it. So what was happening then? You are getting into your youth and you're making choices about what you want to do with your life. And as we know from your bio, you pursued academic studies in both theology and in theater. So, you know, maybe back in your teenage years, what's happening to help inform the choices that you're going to make? You know, first, as you were asking me that, you know, when I first got into theater, I think it was a place where I felt like I could express myself. I was um, felt very uncomfortable in my body growing up. I had really weird hair and I was, a, you know, a little heavier set and kind of dealt with some of those those issues. And I just feel like the stage was a place where I could be myself or be whoever I, I wanted to. It wasn't necessarily escaping. It was just expression, I think, more for me than anything else where, you know, some actors really like becoming other people. And so they don't, you know, that that's very exciting to them. I think me, it's just more of like a, a self-expression. I like to express myself through through the, the acting process and the creative process. I had a, a great a great church growing up in in middle school and high school, and you, a lot of Protestants. Youth group was a big thing that was in its height as well in the '90s and church camp, and so there was a lot of development for my faith at at that that point as well of learning about who God was and that that was the path that I wanted to choose was to choose to believe in the God that we find in the Old and New Testament and to believe in Jesus Christ. And so I did that and and it and it was hard. There was a lot of I didn't face it as much. I think a lot of my peers face it. There's a really big tension between the church and the theater in particular and a lot of of the arts. And I don't know if this is where you're you're driving towards. But it can be a, a difficult thing because theater is so emotional. It is looking at the world and trying to understand it and understand people and why they do what they do, because that's what you have to do for a character. But just as an artist, we get wired to look at things differently in a in a very creative form and sometimes for people in the church that can be very scary because we you know there's this idea of god is to sanctify us or make us holy to cleanse us from our sins and we are to only think about the good and right things and follow this way that God has set out for us. But the reality is, is that we don't do that. We can't do that. Nobody does it. And so it can be scary if you have a child that's in the arts to go, well, what, what's going to happen? I don't know if I want them in this group of people where they're considering other thoughts and they're considering other ideas and 
That's been really interesting. I Thankfully, my parents weren't like that. There was a time where I, I had a trouble getting cast in college and I called my dad. I said, I'm going to quit. And he goes, no, you're not. You're finishing your degree. He basically didn't want to pay for me to do a different track and spend another year in school. He's like, you finish it. If you want to do something else when you're done, that's fine. But you're finishing. And it was the best thing that he could have ever done for me because I might have quit, you know, and he wouldn't let he didn't. He didn't let me quit. He didn't let me do that. Just because I didn't get cast. Boo-hoo. Happens to you every day. <laughs> like, you know. And so get over yourself and do your keep your head down, do your work. So yeah, my my parents were were very supportive of 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 what I I chose. But it has been hard in the church. You know, sometimes folks want me to do plays that are very Jesus centered and you know, a lot of people want you to make art that's just that. And that is very frustrating to me as an artist because I there's a there's a great place for that and in the world and but there's a great place for the art that I make as well. And, you know, people are, oh, you'll do family friendly stuff. I'm like, don't come to my show because you're going to hear a bunch of F-bombs. Like, <laughs> like, and I'm not talking about orgasms and, you know, like, yeah. Where you resist the separation of body and soul and spiritual questions. I feel like you're resisting the separation of art and faith practice and, you know, the study of theology and so on and so forth. And, and you've lived your life doing that. And so you chose to get a master's in theology, but, but with a particular emphasis around the creative arts. And I, I'm wondering what motivated you to do that? And, and how did that experience of study shape the career that you've pursued? The program that I went to at Fuller, I went there because they have a track for artists and they cultivate artists and understand the work of an artist. If you're not familiar with Makate Fujimara, he is a painter, Mako. He he did a lot of development at, at Fuller within the arts track. He's a fantastic painter and a wonderful theologian. I knew, it goes back to your earlier question, when I was in high school, if you want to talk about... Um, from like very church speak, I felt called to theater. <laughs> I knew that that was what I wanted to do. And I also felt called, if you will, to ministry, but it was just like, how does that even work together? And so I pursued my under degree, undergraduate degree in theater. And then I knew I always wanted to go get a master's. I didn't know what that meant or what that would look like. And it was finally when both of my children were in elementary school, I was able to go back and I was trying to decide if I wanted to get a master's in playwriting or I wanted to go get a master's in theology. And I found Fuller and that that was it. I knew that this was where I I wanted to go. And they, so many of the professors, there's lots of arts oriented folks there that teach some incredibly brilliant folks that I got to learn under just affirming the creative process and faith and creativity and artistry of of the character of God and how that 
manifests in us as a as a as, as a person and um, how we express that in art and what our job as an artist is, what our job as a person of faith that is also an artist is. Um, I really grew in a lot of those areas. I still feel like I, I graduated and I feel like a little tiny baby still drinking out of a big old bottle. Like I just, it was like it opened. It was like I was birthed when I finished my program <laughs> of like, now I get to grow up and live and learn. And I have some of these tools and now I'm going to just go grow even, even more. Well, that's a, a great way for me then to ask this question, which is you've suggested that the role of art is not to tell you what to think, but it's to ask questions, to present questions to you. And in some contexts, faith discourages questioning. And it feels to me that you are navigating rather courageously a life of both of those things, living somehow in harmony. And you suggested that this is a journey that you've only just begun and you feel like a sort of a toddler making your way. How do you navigate that? If there is a tension, how do you navigate between those two mindsets or attitudes? And how has that shaped you as an artist and someone of faith? How, how have you evolved in those realms? I think it's first really understanding. I mean, if you want to get to the faith aspect of who God is, I think the religiosity is what's squashed the questioning. You know, actually, the Jewish tradition is very open to questions. They love questions. They love asking questions and people asking questions. And God wants you to ask questions. <laughs> and that's what I think religious people, they like, nope, we have these words in the Bible and this is what we're supposed to do. Not all religious people, but I mean, it can get to be like, no, there's these very hard and fast answers and rules and ways you're supposed to be. And God's like, hey, come ask me your question. Let's see if we can figure it out together. You know, I mean, I feel like he's got it figured out, but he's like on the journey with me. So I think reconciling that is me knowing more who God is and then standing in that and going like, well, you yahoos might think X, Y, and Z, but I know who God is and God's okay with me asking these questions and doing these things. Like he, he actually affirms that in me and, and pushes me towards that. And so I think th that's uh, doing the show has, you know, pushed me towards that going through seminary as well of just being confident in who I am as a person and what, what I believe in what I understand about God. And I think that's how I balance that. And I, I don't want people to confuse the fact that we're talking about the Holy O and, and some of these experiences you've had and the topics that you're wrestling with, with the fact that that's exclusively uh, the realm in which you operate in terms of content. And one work of yours that stood out to me was titled Emily's Post-Apocalyptic Book of Zombie Etiquette which itself is just such a beautiful name. And there's a little bit of text that describes it that um, it says years, off, years after this particular virus breaks out, most humans have become zombies. In efforts to bring back the decorum of a more civilized society, Emily has written a revised version of her classic book, Etiquette. Will the zombies take her advice or will natural instinct take over? Uh, what do you do if you're shaking hands with someone and the arm falls off? The answer Emily tells us is not to eat the arm. 
Lots of clever laughs and physical comedy in this fun new play. Would you talk just a little bit more about other aspects of the creative arts and your inspiration that that you're sort of bringing out in, in your creative work? <laughs> I love that you brought up that play. It's a stupid play. It's so delightful. It's a little 10-minute play that this wonderful publisher picked up. And I love it. I think I wrote that definitely while The Walking Dead was like a big hit, you know? And it's just a little satire. I think I, I learned about Emily Post or I was like into her book at the moment and was like, that would be such a funny play <laughs> if it was like, you know, what's the etiquette like when there's zombies? And if, you know, anyway, it was just a, it's just so kind of funny. What if, and it, it actually, I wrote it. Um, I think I wrote it when I was in new Orleans, but it is, like I said, with a publishing company called mushroom club press that does stuff for a lot of uh, this organization, the national S speech and debate association uh, that I was involved in as a high schooler. And then I coached for a long time and it was definitely developed me as an artist and helped me learn about a lot of different plays and, you know, learn how to, to act and have confidence in front of people. Um, and so I wanted to give back to that community. I'd love to write more stuff for them. So I kind of had them in mind when I was writing that of like, what would a high schooler like to perform? What, you know, silly characters can we put out there? What kind of funny, you know, scenarios can, can we get into? So, you know, not all of my art is, you know, faith and art <laughs> combined. It's just, I like to have a good time. I like to laugh. I'm an improviser as well. I, I love, um, I love funny things. And, and so, um, yeah, <laughs> I'm cracking up that you brought up that play. <laughs> That's great. You were kind enough to talk a little bit about your own childhood and your parents and some of the lessons you learned and the context in which you were raised and formed and influenced. And you've shared with me that you have two daughters. And so what, what are you hoping that they learn? What are you trying to create to help shape their lives and influence and inform how they encounter the world? You know, I want them to be kind, loving people. I think, I mean, I consider myself a follower of Jesus, so I'd like for them to be followers of Jesus. But more, you know, not more importantly, but just as important of how they contribute to the world and, and to be hard workers. I work very hard. What I do is hard, and I uh, they are seeing that right now. I, I spent a lot of time when they were little home and not doing as much art. I, I took a lot of time off to raise them. And now that they're getting old enough to make their own lunches and do their own things, I am also, you know, I'm not just a mom. I'm not just your mother. I'm, <laughs> I'm also so much more. There's so many different parts of my, of my personality and who I am. And I hope that they see that, that hard work is important. I, I want them to see as well that this is very countercultural, that product does not equal success. And we live in a culture that push, 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 produce, 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 climb the ladder, get to the top. And that's not how I want to live my life. 
And I don't want my kids to live their life that way. I want them to see the intrinsic value that they have just by breathing and being alive and walking on this earth that they have value to contribute to the world. And isn't that what art is as well? What we're contributing to the world? And if five people come see my show, that's awesome. If 5,000 people come see my show, that's awesome. I don't have to base my success on the number of ticket sales, though they are nice and I love people to come see my show. But success is based on 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 so many other other things. And I want them to see, I'm not doing a good job of it right now, but I hope they'll see in the long term that I balanced work and life, that I didn't put my work above them, that I didn't let them become the center of my life, that I became a full-fledged, rounded, full, you know, blown person that has all of these these other things that that I do and I contribute to to society and, and to humanity. So I yeah, I, I hope that as they grow up, they they learn to value themselves, they learn to work hard, they learn to be creative and delight in in whatever it is that they want to do and that that work is good and worthy and holy and honorable just in and of itself and that they don't have to have a gazillion degrees or trophies or any of that malarkey to show for it. You did suggest earlier that maybe this is a bit of a cliche or a trope, but you, you talked about entering seminary, but also studying theater and responding to a calling, uh, calling, I think was the word that you used. And I wonder if you still feel at this stage in your life, are you still pursuing your calling? Do you still feel that you're on this path of meaning, whatever that means for you? I feel 100% like I am on that path. Like I am about to step into a season of life that I have been preparing for for a very, very long time. And I'm excited to see what that looks like and and what happens. Um, I've gotten out so much more comfortable about learning about being on a journey that we're all on a on a journey. We've never arrived. We've never got it all figured out and each season has something new. And so I do feel like, I am entering into a season that I have been longing for and waiting for for a very long time. And so, yeah, I, if, if anything, I feel like I'm stepping into my calling more than I ever have as far as who I am as a person. You know, I'm in, I'm in my early 40s and sometimes it can feel like, oh, what have I done with my life? Why am I not you know, even though I just said all that stuff about what my what I want my children to see, it is you still wrestle with that, right? You, there's still that that coexistence of all of that. I can still want all of these wonderful, beautiful things for my children and still struggle with. I'm just not doing as good as my friends are, you know. <laughs> so that's been that's been interesting. So so yeah, I do feel like I'm I'm stepping in in into that even more so than I have in any season of my life. And and I hope it looks like that as, as I go through, I have a tour set up for the next couple of months. And then when that's over, that my children will see me rest and relax after the hard work that I've been doing. So you mentioned the tour coming up, which of course is with the Holio. And I forget the exact dates, but I know early August, 
the Holio is coming to UNO. It'll be performed by you at UNO. Yeah. I would imagine every audience is different and you structure it so that every performance itself has to be different because of its interactive nature. I think whoever you are, if you're a human uh, or maybe even a zombie, I, I don't know, you will find something familiar or recognizable or relatable in the performance. That being said, we all come at a performance like this from different contexts. And I, I wonder if specifically for the Midwest, when you come to Omaha, what are you expecting for the audience here? And, and how do you want them to perhaps be changed a little? I am very excited to come to Omaha. It's the Midwest. It's has some similarities to the South where I've I've spent the majority of my life with a lot of deep religious ties, which is a good thing. And then also comes with a lot of baggage and a lot of hurt and a lot of pain and confusion. And there's just a lot kind of tied up into that. And I'm really excited to be in Omaha because I feel like audiences will have a lot of thoughts and connections to what I'm posing and the questions that I'm posing in this piece. I hope that it will, you know, for any of my audiences, open up conversation for whatever comes up for them in the show, because I just touch on so many different things. I hope that, that they will, will see that. I, I feel like audiences in Omaha might understand my, this is, I don't know. I don't know. I feel like they might have a little bit better understanding with the, with the religious ties. There might be a little bit more connectivity to that, but then I also have a lot of people that come see it that aren't religious and they love it because it's not, it's not a re- it's not a religious piece. <laughs> so um, it, it, that's a component of it, you know. But yeah. My guest today has been playwright, producer, director, and performer Lauren Hance. Thank you so much, Lauren, for being on the show. I've loved the conversation. Wonderful, Stuart. Thank you for having me. Lives is brought to you on KIOS Omaha Public Radio and is produced by Courtney Beerman. The music you hear playing in and playing out is performed by Andrew Bailey. Podcasts of today's show and others can be found at livesradioshow.com or where you get your podcasts. Subscribe today and please leave a review. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden. Join me next week as we delve further into the practical and profound possibilities of living well. Thanks for listening. Thank you.